Hey, it's Greg Stanley. Do you know you can now win prizes such as a Starbucks gift card, Concord tickets, or car swag for being the first to answer an entertaining trivia question? Get the weekly trivia question by following me on Instagram or Facebook at The Collector Car Podcast and just DM me your answer. The first person with the correct answer wins. Also, as a new aspect of my automotive passion and hobby, I am a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. If you need assistance consigning a collector car at Amelia Island, Pebble Beach, Auburn, West Palm, or Hershey, email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley, and welcome to the Collector Car Podcast. Got a really cool guest today, Rick Smith with NPD. Rick, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing good. Now, it's been uh, trying times here with the coronavirus hitting everybody, uh, and you have a really big business that I used for years when I had my 66 Mustang convertible. I would often get many parts in person from your uh, Detroit area outlet. If you could just kind of oh, go wow, over yeah. Your- yeah, if you could just kind of give our listeners an overview to your to your business and how you're coping during these difficult times. Well, we're a restoration parts supplier, and um, we uh, have warehouses uh, in four different states, which is actually uh, turning out to be a fortunate thing in, in our ability to continue serving our customers, regardless of, of, of uh, how uh, intense the uh, quarantines are going on on a state-by-state basis. As of now, we are uh, able to, uh, to uh, accept orders and ship at all four locations. We're running at full capacity. And our showrooms, we stopped the foot traffic in, but we've even come uh, up with a uh, with a end-around plan for that where people can call in advance, place their order for will call pickup, and we'll run it out the front door in a cart and let you load it into your vehicle and take the cart back from you. So so we're kind of making it work thus far, and uh, knock on wood, uh, I'm hoping that we can uh, continue to keep everybody, you know, uh, we've, we've actually had a surge in business because so many people are faced with the prospect of being stuck at home for a minimum of two weeks, maybe even more. So uh, we're getting a lot of orders for people uh, getting caught up on uh, projects that they had been wanting to do on their cars or their ongoing restoration project and uh, keeping them uh, supplied with parts so they can stay busy. So yeah. I like to think of that as, as uh, something that at least helps assist people's uh, state of mind and uh, state of mental health and all this to, to have something uh, positive to do while, while you're quarantined at home without uh, the ability to, uh, you know, to do much in the way of anything that's productive. Right, right. And I know that when I had my old Mustang, I was always hoping for more time to work on it. And now everybody has a lot of time to work on those projects. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd dynamic. Right, right. And I didn't mention before, but NPD is National Parts Depot, and you cover a lot of American brands, correct? Yes, we sell, uh, you know, no restoration parts company carries can possibly carry parts for every make and every model because that's just too uh, broad of a, you just couldn't keep it under one roof and you wouldn't be able to do a good job of it. But we do have 12 active catalogs. We sell uh, parts for uh, the more popular high-volume vehicles that are restored. Uh, we do uh, the Ford Mustang, uh, Chevy Camaro up through 1981. Uh, we also do the uh, Chevrolet Chevelle, Malibu, and El Camino line. And we also do the Pontiac counterparts, uh, the, the GTO Tempest Le Mans and the uh, Firebird and Trans Am. We have truck catalogs for Ford and Chevrolet uh, light-duty trucks. We do the Ford Bronco. We do the Mercury Cougar because that's a close relative to the Mustang. And we also 
have the um, uh, 55 through 57 uh, two-passenger Thunderbird catalog, which is really where we started out uh, way back in the day when my dad started the business in the basement of our house in uh, Kingsville, Florida. Now, did he start that business because he had a T-Bird in the garage he needed to get restored? Well, I, he had a little bit more experience than that. My dad... <laughs> Back in, uh, my dad's been uh, uh, playing with uh, the classic car hobby since he was a kid. I want to say he was 14 when he bought his Model A. So, so that would have been uh, 1957. He bought his first car, which was the 1928 Model A that he rolled out of a junkyard for uh, $50. And he started restoring that car while he was in high school. He quickly got frustrated that the Model A restoration parts suppliers during that day at the time when he was ordering fastener kits because he said the car was so rusty he could jump in the trunk and walk to the dashboard. So he wanted all new fasteners. Keep in mind this is a 14-year-old kid, and think about this. He was upset because the fastener kits he was getting were not correct. He said that it was, uh, in his words, generic hardware store junk. So <laughs> he set about to research and source correct fasteners and hardware for Model A Ford, wound up turning that into a business, J.C. Uh, Whitney wound up being one of his major distributors for his uh, Model A fastener kits. And by the age of 16, he was already successful enough in his fastener business that he purchased a uh, slightly used one-and-a-half-year-old 1957 Thunderbird with the uh, E-Code uh, dual four-barrel carburetor setup on it. And from that day forward, he's been a lifelong T-Bird lover. And uh, he drove that car for a quarter million miles. Uh, restored a different one uh, during the 60s. He was one of the founding members of the Classic Thunderbird Club International. Wow. He did that fastener business as a sideline. He also worked with my grandfather running a, uh, a machine and manufacturing business. And when he uh, kind of uh, parted ways with my grandfather in 1976, he decided he wanted to get into restoration parts. He sold the Model A fastener business because by that time, Model A restorations were already starting to be on the decline instead of the incline. And he started selling T-Bird parts because he knew those T-Birds inside and out. Wow. And speaking of, you know, decline and increase, uh, I noticed you're also doing Mustangs up to 2004. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, we started out just doing the Fox bodies, 79 to 93. And then I guess it's been two years ago now we uh, added on the, uh, they call it the SN95 platform, which is uh 1994 up to 2004, and it's doing really well. It's every year we're seeing growth in both of those markets. So you're probably pretty in tune to the market trends to see what you should be investing your time, your capacity, your manpower in, correct, as far as what to expand on? Uh, <laughs> yes and no. I, I, I really you know, hate to be the prognosticator out there because it's so hard to, to forecast the future and keep your own personal preferences out of it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And me being as much of an enthusiast as I am involved with the business, I, I do find myself having a hard time uh, separating my own, uh, you know, what I think should be growing in popularity against what probably will be growing in popularity. I will tell you this, though, is that there's there definitely seems to be so many different dynamics. You know, people always used to think, well, as the 50s cars get older, then people will move on to the 60s. And when the 60s get older, they'll move on to the 70s. And it's just always going to gradually move right. up to newer and newer cars. Well, with the advent of different material engineering and and the way cars are made and airbags and the 
50 pounds of wiring harnesses that go into a car, and that's probably, you know, an <laughs> underestimation right. compared to a brand new car today. And on and on and on, there is indeed a perpetual sweet spot in the cars from, you know, after World War II. And I say after World War II because, um, because uh, pre-war cars are difficult to drive around on public roads these days with all the traffic and with the speeds. But you can do it. You can get away with it from a car from the 50s forward. So 50s, 60s, 70s cars are still so, when you look at it from a, from a take it apart and put it back together standpoint, still so basic and primitive and something that you can tackle yourself with a shop manual and some craftsman tools in your own garage, that sweet spot will always be there. And that sweet spot does not exist for the more modern cars where if you've got, you know, uh, computer issues and you're dealing with airbags and all types of circuitries to where the, you know, the car's not going to work unless you've got all the stuff uh, new and in place. There's a lot of limitations with more modern cars. Plus, material engineering has advanced so much that a lot of the components and the interior pieces in these newer cars don't go don't right. go to hell <laughs> like they used to back in the 50s and 60s. So there's not much of a parts market there because there's less and less of the car that needs to be replaced. Uh, Mustangs and Camaros, and they rusted within five or six years. They The interiors started splitting within four or five years. Uh, you needed parts, and when you need parts, there's a business and an industry there uh, with potential. That just does, it's not the same dynamic for modern cars. Yeah, for, for full restoration, comprehensive rest, taking a car completely apart, refinishing it, rebuilding it, and putting it back together, there's, that's, you're just going to see people continue to redo and do again and do again and rebuild again those older classics. And it, we are seeing it with some of the, of the newer cars from the 80s and 90s, but I just don't see it perpetuating into cars past 2000, where there's just going to be this uh, monstrous aftermarket industry selling reproduction parts so that you can right. restore your modern yeah. car. They just don't wear out the same way. And uh, there's been so much 2020 hindsight as far as people buying cars just for, you know, as a second car for sunny days and everything. I think there's always going to be ready availability if you want a 2004 Mustang or if you want a 2012 Camaro 20 years from now there's probably going to be some nice low mile ones that don't need any restoration on the market that you can buy at that time. I often think of the late sixties, early seventies as that same point, the time frame that you could still work on it, that it could still keep up with modern traffic. It has some pretty good performance. You know, you could add on the disc brakes and the power steering and the AC if you wanted to. I see those as like the one, the evergreen, right. they just, they won't ever go down in general from a restoration perspective. So that's really cool. That's right. That's the perfect uh, word to put it to it. Uh, evergreen. It's, those that era of car is uh, is going to always be the one that's the most practical to do if you're going to do it yourself. Right, right. Now, one thing I loved about visiting your uh, distribution center in person up there outside of Detroit is that you always had two or three really low mile cars in the lobby. I remember there was a black, you know, smoking the bandit Trans Am up there. This is years ago, and I know that in your personal collection yeah. you kind of specialize in. I don't want to speak for you, but you 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 have a lot of low mile cars. Is that correct? Yes, yes. We've got in our personal collection we've got over two hundred vehicles, and uh, I'd say somewhere around. 65 to 70 percent of those are of the very low mile and restored variety. The the ones that are restored, that's a mixed bag of cars that we've acquired that were already done or that we commissioned trusted shops that we're uh, comfortable with 
having the restorations done. But I'll tell you what, every time I, I buy a car that's already restored, and by the time we get done restoring it for the second time because nothing worked, <laughs> I think that's one of the main motivations that was steering my father and myself towards unrestored cars because, you know, the paint might have a little bit of orange peel and the chrome might not be uh, perfect. But on an unrestored car that's never been torn apart, there's never been an opportunity for somebody to screw it up. And the factories did an amazing job of, of, of building a very beautifully driving, good-running vehicle. And there's no better experience than driving one of those old-mile cars where everything works the way it was originally intended by the manufacturer. Yeah, and the door on a restored car does not close nearly as well as the door on an unrestored car does, right? <laughs> no, no, no rattles. No, uh, the car doesn't bounce around uh, at idle. Uh, everything works as it was engineered. Okay. So if you had to pick one restored and one unrestored to keep forever, I know that's a hard question to ask, but which two just popped to mind? People would uh, immediately knee-jerk and say, well, yeah, that's kind of obvious because it's a big block Shelby and those are so valuable and collectible. But we've, I've got a, a 1968 GT500KR68 in the collection. And it's restored, but it was a very, very good original car to start with. Cars never had a door ding or, a, or even a, wow. a, a pinpoint of rust. Um, but it was my mom. It was my mom's daily driver back in the '70s, and that's the car. I mean, when I was a kid, I would sit on the console and steer that car through our neighborhood. So I have a very tight, sentimental attachment to that Shelby. So that one's a keeper. And then unrestored. That gets tough. There's a lot of great unrestored cars out there, and I don't know that any are floating to mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's tough. Um, I mean, and and then some of my dad's cars that he bought brand new from back in the 70s and 80s, he never sold, and I've got those still in the collection as well. So there's sentimentality there. Yeah. What's the What's the oldest low mile car you have in the collection? We've got a couple of 1930 Lincoln uh, L model sedans. And 1930, that's pretty old, that are that are still completely 100% unrestored and look really nice. Original paint, beautiful original upholstery. But both of those have over 20,000 miles on them, and that's not necessarily low mile in context right. with the rest of the collection. Well, I'd say the oldest car that was truly mothballed is we have a 1940 uh, Continental, which is a two-door. It's a coupe. They made them in convertibles, and they made a very small amount of coupes. Uh, we've got a 40 Continental Coupe that has, I think at this point, right at 680. Oh, wow. Okay. It's, it's, still got, it's still got the little tags dangling from the cigarette lighters and everything in the interior. It's like a new car. Wow. That's amazing. I, I'm assuming that once people know you collect low-mile cars, some cars will find you. Is that right? Yes. Uh, I, I've been involved with uh, Dennis Gage and my classic car now for over 20 years and, and in our sponsorship and advertising on his uh episodes uh once a year he'll come here and we'll pick out a few cars do the episodes on my classic car and that show is so widely viewed that as the years went by and more and more people learned of our collection and learned of the nature of our collection and how we like to preserve the low mile unrestored stuff i get a lot of emails and phone calls and some a lot of them it's a fishing expedition they're thinking that i'll just you know hand them a blank right right <laughs> fill in the amount and I trust me that is not in any way how we've ever operated so but every once in a while you know, every once in a while you you know that that, that uh, amazing email will come through and I'll go really oh, tell me more and we'll 
share photographs, and sometimes that's turned into some really neat stuff. Now, is all your stuff American, or do you have some uh, European-type stuff in there as well? 97% American-made. I've got a couple of really low-mile, you know, basically brand-new uh, of those all-wheel-drive twin-turbo Dodge Stealths. Oh, wow, which yeah. Which is uh, a, shared, a, shared, a shared platform with the uh, Mitsubishi 3000. Yep. So those are technically Japanese cars. i got two of those, a white one and a red one. Is that a hardtop convertible one of those? They made one. Uh, uh, American Sunroof Company, ASC, did that in a limited run that I can't remember how many they did, but no, I don't have one of those. Okay. Okay. And I've got a couple of Porsches in the collection, uh, an old one, a 1979 928, that's the old one, and then I've got a 2005 that I've kept that I, I basically special ordered brand new and daily drove for a couple of years and then have held on to since. Wow. A couple of Mercedes and one one Jaguar, and I think that's the extent. That's the extent of our of our uh, imported cars. What made the we, Jaguar so special to Ernest? It was just Bob. a fluke. Oh. We were at a friend at a friend who's a, who's a dealer, a classic car dealer in Orlando, and we were there actually buying one of the Stealths that he he had uh, he had come up with this uh, ninety one twin turbo Stealth with seven thousand original miles on it. So my dad and I went down to look at it, bought it, and he had a uh, and it's not a fancy, it's not a high end Jaguar. It's just a nineteen nineteen ninety five. Uh, XJS Vanden Plus, the long wheelbase with the fancy wood trays right. built into the back of the front seats. And it was this real pretty uh, shade of um, dark metallic red with a parchment interior. My dad's a sucker for that color combination. And the car was in brand new condition. Those cars aren't worth a hill of beans as far as the value, so it was cheap. And it used to belong to the original owner was the uh, uh, founder of Detroit Steel Tube. And if you've ever heard of Detroit Steel Tube, they were a, a third-party uh, contractor for the big three in Detroit. They built a whole ton of different specialties, like race cars. They built the original Ford Thunderbolts. And But when, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that Detroit Steel Tube built the majority of concept vehicles for the big three. They built a lot of concept cars. So uh, I've got some of their concepts also in our collection. So anyways, Dad just liked the car. He bought it. It's got a neat connection. And he drives it. He'll he'll come back from his house in Colorado after he leaves for the summer and comes back here to Florida, and, and we'll gas it up, pull it out, and he drives it back and forth from his house. Wow, that's really cool. Well, now, of all the cars you've seen and heard about and bought and sold, what's the one that got away? Uh, the the one that, that still grinds me to this day is, uh, and I was a kid, so this is just memories, but there used to be a white 1969 Boss 429 for sale in the classifieds in Gainesville, Florida, which is where we lived back in the mid-70s. So that would have made me seven, eight, nine years old, right. somewhere in that range. And it was advertised for 1700 bucks. Guy lived right in the downtown Gainesville. I remember going with my dad to see the car, and it was parked beside the house. It was dirty, dusty, had a dent in the driver's door, but it was a $1,700 Boss 429. And my dad kept arm twisting the guy to accept his $1,500 offer. And this went on for like a couple of weeks. I kept on because I was excited about it. I was like, yeah, what's going on there? He's like, he's like, I don't want to give him a penny over 1500 for it. And then finally, I remember one day that says, you know, get your shoes on. I've, I'm gonna, I give up. I'm going to give that guy his freaking $1,700 and go get that Boss 429. I was like, all oh, right, yay. We drive over there, and the guy's got the car out in his front yard. And he's just drying it off. He had washed it up and cleaned it all up, and the car looked <laughs> brand friggin' new. 
it was sitting there glimmering in the front yard. Right. And he had just sold it that morning. Oh, wow. So over a squabble over $200, my dad missed out on that. On that '69 Boss 429. That one to this day, I think, was the was the the goofiest deal that we missed out on. Now, did you make up for that deal? And there's a, currently a Boss 429 in your collection. Kind of, sorta. You have to adjust for inflation <laughs> quite a bit. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I bought. I've got a. I've got a, a Raven Black Boss 429 69 that I bought uh, myself in 1997 because that was always one of my bucket list cars. And of course, I'd always been so depressed about not getting that white one. So. I bought mine in 1997, and relatively speaking, in 97, uh, values were actually very depressed for POS 429s, and that's why I, I know I was young then. I was only 30 years old, so I had to scrape together some funds and sell a car and actually took out a loan wow. from my sister and, uh, and, bought, and bought my BOSS 429 in 97 because I, I had a feeling then that uh, they would never be cheaper. And holy right. cow, was I right? Because <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't long. It wasn't long after that, after they started televising the Barrett Jackson auctions, that the Boss 429 would sell in the six figures, and all my friends would be calling me up, going, "Look what your car is worth now!" And I'd just say, "Yeah, look at my insurance rates going up now." <laughs> so <laughs> now, is this a low mile unrestored example? It's had a paint job, and uh, the uh, engine was uh, built by Earl Wade, who uh, did a lot of the uh, race engines. Or, uh, Dino Don Nicholson. So it's a little bit modified. It's got a 494 crank in it. It's a run-in car. Right. Anybody who says Boss 429s can't be made to run fast, they, they haven't been in mind. And um, essentially, it is an amazing car. It's got 100% of its original interior that's almost like new. It's, it's got 28,000 original miles, and uh, it's never seen rust or rain. Uh, the, end, the underneath of the car looks brand new. So it's a really nice, it's got good bones. It's an intrinsically good car. It's not one of the, I've seen Boss 429s with less miles on them, but that have lived a much rougher life than mine did. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Well, now you said you grew up in Gainesville. Does that mean you're a Florida Gator? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a Seminole fan. Oh, my goodness. Oh, uh, okay. well, <laughs> I don't know what to say, but I'll be polite. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have every right to not be polite at this point, the way our season's been going. <laughs> Okay, so I will continue on. I grew up in Jacksonville, but went to Florida State there in Tallahassee, so I had to ask that for sure. So, all right. Well, you're still okay in my book. You're a car guy, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I like to do at the end of this is kind of do a fun game called Keep, Cash, and Crush. So I give you three cars, and you have to tell me which one you want to keep and which one you want to cash in and which one you want to crush. Now, this is just figuratively speaking. We're not going to actually do it. Now, since you're a Gator fan, I'm going to have to make it really hard on you, but... uh you know, we'll see how you do. Are you ready for <laughs> oh, it? Oh, yeah. I'm a Gator, so I'm always up for the challenge. Okay. All right. So I'm giving you three cars. All three are going to be really low miles. Let's say they all have a 1,000 miles on them. They all are yep. in great shape. And since you're mostly American cars in your collection, I decided not to pick American cars, but they have a strong American connection. Okay? I want to find out if you have the car it's connected to in your collection. So the first one is a 1962 AC Ace. The father of the AC Cobra. So, do you yep. have any Cobras in your collection? No, I wish, but that uh, <laughs> that ship sailed. <laughs> uh, that's on the bucket list. Okay, and that's the 2.6 liter version. They only built 37 of them, so that's the first car. The second car mm -hmm. is a 1970 Pantera with the Ford 351. Do you have any Panteras? No, that's that's kind of been a bucket list of mine that I've never gotten around to. Okay, now I know this last. I, I know this last one you have in your collection. So the third car 
1961 Fasil Vega, but with a 383 Chrysler. Do you have any 383 Chrysler engines in your collection? No. What? Okay, you got to have the 440 or 426 then, right? We've got very little Mopar in the collection, and that that would be that be a whole other radio show to try to explain <laughs> you why, but it's purely circumstantial. Oh, okay. It's complicated, but uh, we've got a few Chryslers, but um, I've got a I've got a 318 and a 1968. Uh, pickup truck that's only got 600 miles on it. Wow. Well, I do have a 440, but I don't call the, the 440 a 440 when it's sitting in a 1977 New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's not the same <laughs> engine, basically. That's a, that's a highly detuned 440. Right, highly. Okay, so I, I can't believe those three cars I picked like that. Okay, so your three cars are 1962 AC Ace, 1970 Pantera, or 19, and a 1961 Fashion Vega, all low miles and great shape. So which one would you keep forever? Which one would you cash in and which one would you crush that's tough because uh when i was younger i would keep the pantera but that ac ace is tough to give away the fascial vegas i appreciate they're incredible cars they've got wonderful industry and they're worth so much money that you'd have to be insane to crush one but i've never wanted to own one and, uh, and I don't think that that a that a Fasil Vega is worth that much less or more than an Ace, and I'd hate to crush an Ace. I'd have to crush the Fasil Vega. I'd have to cash out the Ace and keep the Pantera. I think I'd be dumb. A thousand original mile Pantera, that'd be a hard thing not to keep, especially the first model year. Right, right. Yeah, and that's I, honestly, I thought you might go that way with your love for Fords to have that 351 Pantera. Uh, at least that's the one that you would keep. So, okay, well, that's awesome. Especially in that early with the chrome, the small little chrome bumpers and everything, I think it's one of the most beautiful designs that's ever been. I totally agree. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for your time today. What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and your company? Uh, just go to our website. It's uh, www, which I know you don't have to type in, but it's npdlink.com. It's all one word, npdlink.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time today, Rick. Uh, I had fun. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast. Collector Car Podcast.